Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 through 28. It can be found on page 822 in the Bibles under your seats. Matthew 16, 13 through 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. On behalf of the elders, welcome to Trinity Community Church. My name is Everett, and we'll be bringing God's word to you this morning. Join me as we pray once more. Father, send your Holy Spirit and surround us this morning. Lord, dispel and drive out any false images that we have of who Jesus is, any misconceptions that we might have of what it means to follow him. Lord, reveal to us your son and reveal to us his way and give us a taste of the life of his kingdom. Father, help me to speak your word clearly. Help us to hear Guard us from the enemy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So to begin with the obligatory movie references, many of you you know that I am a 
excessive fan of the Lord of the Rings movies. That those are, those are my absolute favorite movies of all. And if you take all that is good about every movie that was ever made and you combine it into one and you raise that to the third power, <laughs> you haven't approached the goodness of the Lord of the Rings movies. So with that said, one thing that I hate about the movie The Return of the King is the way that it portrays the scene where Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas go through the paths of the dead. So now, having referred to a movie, I'm going to refer to the version in the book. Where Aragorn and the riders of Rohan and Gandalf have just come from overthrowing Saruman. Sorry if I'm spoiling a 60-year-old book. Um, And... Gandalf is ridden off and the riders and Aragorn are going to go and muster their army and go off and fight Sauron. And it's, it's, a, it's a dramatic moment and it's a hopeful moment. And as the morning that they're getting ready to leave, Aragorn comes down and informs the king of the Rohirrim, Theoden, that he's not going to ride, Aragorn's not going to ride into battle with him. And, and the Rohirrim are crushed because here is this king who has returned out of myth and out of legend who is, who is going to lead them to glorious victory. And instead he tells them he's going to go down this thing called the paths of the dead. That he's going to enter into this dark door in the side of a mountain from which no man has ever returned alive. And that's their only hope for victory in the coming war. That he won't go and lead them into glory the way they're expecting. But he goes with his his closest friends and with the elf Gimli and the or the with the elf Legolas and the dwarf Gimli. They go into the mountain and it's dark and it's terrifying. And it says that the only thing that held them on that road was love for Aragorn who was leading them, love for their king. And then later in the story, and this I did like in the movie, later in the story when they're on the battlefield, the Rohirrim, the people of Gondor, all the free people are fighting on the battlefield and they're being overwhelmed by their enemies. And then these ships pull up. And it looks like the ships of their enemies, but Aragorn leads the army out, coming from beyond the paths of the dead, to triumph. And it's saved, and then they have to go to another battle, and so on. But the way that's described in the book, versus the way it's described in the movie, is just so powerful that this king leads his people through death and leads forth an army of the dead to victory. And I was reminded of that as I was thinking about this passage that we're looking at today, that there's something that people don't understand about the true king. That uh, the Rohirrim think, here's the king, he's going to lead us to glory and victory. And he is going to lead them to glory and victory, but that path goes through death. And it was the same for Jesus' disciples that they have, they have bonded themselves to this king. They're following him and they're anticipating glory and victory, but he's going to lead them by a different path. 
And so what we see in this passage today is that we find true life and true victory by following the true way of the true Jesus. So we're going to look backward through that statement and see see the real Jesus understand his way that leads to life and victory. So we've got to trust the real Jesus. We can't just trust our own ideas of who Jesus is. And so at this point in the book of Matthew, Jesus and the disciples have been encountering a lot of resistance from the Pharisees, from the local religious leaders and teachers in the region of Galilee. And at one point, they just went completely out of Jewish territory entirely. Uh, That's what we talked about last week. They go up into a Gentile area, and they come back to another Gentile area. Now they're back in Jewish territory, but they're going to a pagan city, Caesarea Philippi, which was a, a center for the worship of the god Pan, traditionally. And not long before this had been renamed after Caesar, and now it's also a center of the worship of Caesar in this area. So Jesus takes his disciples, again, going away from the, uh, the primary religious leaders of the Jewish people in this region who are resisting him. And this, this moment is a hinge in the book of Matthew that up till now Jesus' ministry and his work has been centered around the Sea of Galilee. But now he's going to begin moving towards Jerusalem. So going from these local diffuse religious leaders who are, uh, who are resisting them, resisting him to the very concentrated point of their power. So he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man being a phrase he uses to refer to himself. And the disciples say, well, they, well, there's a lot of things going on. Some of them say that you're John the Baptist. We heard not long ago that Herod, the, uh, one of the rulers of this area, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, even though... Jesus is 30-something and John the Baptist is 30-something. But Herod worked that out. Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. But other people think he's a prophet. Maybe he's Elijah who has prophesied to come before and announce the coming of the Messiah, the chosen King of God. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe this means because Jesus is going around saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Maybe he's Elijah that was prophesied. Others think maybe he's Jeremiah, who is one of the Old Testament prophets, who was known particularly for his suffering and for his rejection by the people he came to prophesy to. Or maybe he's some other prophet. But the people seem to have this idea. Jesus is a significant religious teacher. Whether he's actually sent by God or not, They're up in the air about, but he is a significant teacher. And so Jesus then asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who often speaks for the disciples, says, you are the chosen ruler of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, the son of the living God. There have been all these other ideas, but this is the one that the disciples are landing on. Jesus is the son of God the chosen king. 
And Jesus responds to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus hears this answer from Peter, and he says, Right on, man. I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. And that's not something that you could have just figured out on your own. But God himself has revealed this to you. And one of the things I did as I was preparing was I went back through the book of Matthew and I looked at all the different ways that Jesus is described by people in Matthew, whether it's by Matthew himself, the narrator, whether it's by the Pharisees, whether it's by the disciples, whether it's by Gentiles that come up to him. And I looked at the different things that Jesus has done. What has Peter seen up till now? He has seen Jesus heal the sick repeatedly. Like every other passage, it seems like, sick people are coming to Jesus and he's healing them. He's driving out leprosy. He's casting out demons with a word. He raises a dead girl. They're out on the sea and Jesus speaks and the wind calms and the sea becomes, becomes calm. And at that point, the disciples, the first time this happened, which is amazing that there's a first time this happened, the disciples are, wow, who is this that even the sea obeys him? And again, not long before this, they're out on the sea and they see Jesus walking on the water. And again, he speaks and the sea calms, and they say, truly you are the Son of God. So they've seen Jesus doing divine things. They've seen him claim to forgive sins. They've seen him give the authoritative interpretation of God's law. And yet, Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, there is something that has happened in Peter, something that was done by God that enables him to grasp and understand Jesus' identity. And when we look out at our world and we look out at what people think about Jesus today, whether it's that he was a great moral teacher, whether he was a ambiguous, maybe existent, maybe non-existent historical myth, that uh, for, for Muslims, that he is a prophet that comes before Muhammad, who will fight on the side of the Dar al-Islam at the end of the world to overthrow Satan. Whether it's Hindu teachers that say he's an avatar of God, just like Buddha, just like Krishna whether it's people who say that Jesus is the one who looks out for us and gives us the best life we can have now, the one who makes us happy, the one who calms our fears, whatever. There's lots of images, lots of ideas in our world of who Jesus is. And we must understand who he really is. And to an extent, that only comes from God. So if we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to know who he really is, we have to look to his revelation that he's given us in his disciples, their testimony, 
But we also have to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We have to ask God to reveal to us and to help us understand who Jesus really is. Because if he really is our king, if he really is the one who is given to restore this world, to build up the people of God, then we have to know who he is, not just who we think he is. Jesus, Jesus commends Peter that you were right, and he goes on to say to him, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter's confession, Peter as the one representing the disciples who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the one who is given to the world to deliver us from our sins, to overcome the evil that we see around us. That is the foundational message of God's church. Peter, when he looks back on this himself in his later letter in, uh, in the, the book of First Peter, says Jesus is the foundation and we ourselves, Jesus' people, are being built up as living stones into his temple, into the place of the presence of God in this world. And that is all dependent on the truth of this confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the message we proclaim. That's the message that's been given to us. That's the message we must believe. And in doing that, in believing that, and trusting Jesus, we must follow the true way of Jesus. So if you look, actually, I'm going to look outside this passage, because today, as many of you know, especially if you were raised in a more liturgical church environment, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the anniversary of the day that Jesus led his disciples into Jerusalem to crowds that were waving palms and throwing their coats on the ground so that he could ride on a donkey over them, to people proclaiming, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, son of David. So today is the anniversary of that day when Jesus led his people into Jerusalem and it seemed like a great and triumphant moment. It was everything that his disciples were anticipating, that the people of Israel were anticipating the coming of a king who would deliver them from the Romans, who would deliver them from corruption, who would deliver them from corrupt leaders. It was everything that they expected, except that it wasn't. That... uh, Their expectation was this moment of triumph. And we see this. We see this here in this passage. Their expectation was a moment of triumph. But Jesus' plan was Palm Sunday, the moment of triumph leading to Good Friday. Leading to the day when he would die. And so if we look at... uh, 
starting here in verse 21 of chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It was interesting. One of the things I noticed as I was, as I was preparing for this was that in, in just the previous, at the beginning of chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. To show them a sign. And Jesus says, the only sign you guys are going to get is the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. So that's what, the, that's what he tells the Pharisees, and they go away angry because it doesn't seem like he's answered their question. And now he shows his disciples what that sign means. That the Son of Man, this one that they're counting all their hopes on, must go to Jerusalem. Okay, that's, that's right. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. That's, where, that's the center of Judaism. That's the, the place that God has chosen. So, okay, we're on, we're on track with that. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And, okay, maybe if we look back at the Old Testament and we look at the, the way that the prophets of God have been treated. And, and, and if you look at the... The Messiah is called the son of David. And if you look at David, he was persecuted and hounded from place to place by Saul and by other enemies. So, okay, this, this is kind of in the pattern. So he'll go to Jerusalem, they'll, they'll resist him a little bit, and then he'll triumph. But no. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. The chosen, anointed king sent by God is going to go to Jerusalem, and he must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that he goes to Jerusalem. This is what Jesus is telling them. All of this stuff must happen. It is why he has come. He must go and be killed. And that is not what the disciples are expecting. That is not what the people are expecting. They've read Isaiah 53, where it talks about a suffering servant, but they have not understood that this is their Messiah, that this is God's chosen king. It is for the disciples and for the Jewish people of this time, it is virtually logically impossible that the Messiah could be killed. Because if he's killed, if, if the people who are resisting overcome him, then how can he possibly be the one that is going to triumph over the enemies? If your enemies kill you, ipso facto, you did not triumph over them. I was, I was thinking about this, and, and just to, bel- to belabor the point, if you imagine the World Series... And you've got a pitcher, and in, his, in, in the first game of the series, he's the opening day pitcher for the World Series, he gives up 10 earned runs. And then, because he's the best pitcher on the team, 
in game five, he starts again. And he gives up eight more earned runs. And before he gets pulled, he hits into a rally-killing triple play. The only one in the history of the World Series. And after his team loses the series, he is named the most valuable player. The ridiculousness of that, combined and cubed, does not approach the ridiculousness of the idea that God's chosen king will be killed by his enemies. But that's what Jesus said. He must be slain, and on the third day be raised. And so, Jesus, and so Peter, confidently, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus responds to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not thinking the things of God, but the things of men. In our minds, we think of what triumph looks like. We think of what God's deliverance looks like. But God has a different plan. And it's so much deeper. And it's so much more powerful than our plan. And the only way to grasp it, again, is to listen to the voice of the disciples and to listen to God's Holy Spirit and to let him convict us that this way that we idealize of how our life is going to go, of the way that we're going to find joy, of the way that we're going to overcome our trials, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And there is a way that God has chosen And so Jesus tells them then what this path is. Deny yourself. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So if we want to follow Jesus, if we believe that he is the Son of God, that he is God's chosen one, and we want to follow him, we've got to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Taking up the cross is something that a condemned person did. It was something that somebody who was condemned to death would carry the cross beam to his crucifixion and then he would be nailed to that beam and die. If you want to follow Jesus, take up your cross. Count yourself as already condemned to death. So what more can your enemy do to you? Because you're already dead. Count yourself dead. Deny yourself. So if we follow that path, we will find true life and victory in Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his... Whoever, let's try that again. For whoever would, wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this desire to save and to hold on to our own life, to hold on to our desires and plans for what good life is, to hold on to that, that will kill us. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And I was trying to think about how does this, like what does that look like concretely trying to save our lives? Does it look like husbands who are trying to control and manipulate their wives and reign over them so that the husband's life will be easy so that he will have power and prestige in the home? so that he manipulates and belittles his wife and keeps hold of the the money and the car? That will kill him. Does it look like parents who are forcing their plans and their desires on their children because they're living vicariously through their children, hoping that the children will be the successful athlete or business person that the parent couldn't be, so that they're constantly forcing that child into a path that is opposed to who God has made that child. A parent who is doing that is losing their life instead of surrendering their dreams for what this child's going to be. Does it look like a single person who is living for himself and pursuing pleasure and cutting himself off from other people, wasting time, wasting his life. Those plans, those, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this today, regardless of what somebody else needs, regardless of what call. I get that so-and-so's in the hospital. I'm going to stay home and watch the NBA playoffs. That man or that woman is losing her life as she tries to hold on to it. Do we look at the things we want and say, Lord, this is what I want, but what do you want? Because I want your plan. Do we stand there with Peter and say, Lord, your plan cannot involve death because that's not how these things work. And so are agents of Satan destroying our own lives. Or do we let go? Do we honor our wife? Do we honor who God has made our children? Do we honor our brothers and sisters who are intruding upon our time? Do we honor our neighbors by telling them that whatever it is they're hoping in that is not Jesus is going to kill them unless they believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the sacrifice for their sins. Are we killing ourselves by keeping our mouths shut and killing them at the same time?
In his response to Peter, in addition to naming him the rock, Jesus also tells him that I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is back in uh, in verses uh, 19 and 20. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there's a sense in which what, Pete, what Jesus says to Peter is specific to Peter, but there's a sense in which it is true of the whole people of God. That our proclamation of the gospel, our telling someone that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is their Savior who can redeem them from their sins, is an opening or shutting of the kingdom. Do we shut the kingdom like the scribes did by not telling people how they can get into it? Or do we open the doors to this promise of life in God that is not just for today, that's not just for tomorrow, but that is for eternity? Do we open that door? Or do we keep silent and keep the door shut Peter had an amazing opportunity. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples and he goes forth and proclaims to the people of Jerusalem the same Peter who just a few days before had denied Jesus because he was afraid, goes out publicly and proclaims, this Jesus who you crucified, God has risen from the dead and he has made the Messiah. He goes to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jews, and opens a door to them that this same God who has delivered Israel can deliver you. He opens the doors of the kingdom of heaven. And he also closes the doors of the kingdom of heaven. When Ananias and Sapphira come to Peter and say, hey, we just gave this money to the church. And Peter says, is that all the money? Is that all the money you got? that uh, all the money that you said you give, is that what you gave? No, we lied about that. And they fall down dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. When Simon, the Samaritan sorcerer, asks the disciples, can he purchase from them the power of God that they are displaying among the people? Peter tells him, your money will perish with you. By proclaiming the gospel, we open the door. And by explaining what it means and what it truly means to follow God, we close the door on those who do not want to hear that message, on those that want to follow their own path and don't want to follow the path of Jesus. Working backwards one more time into this passage, Jesus tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my assembly, which is another name for the people of God. That on the rock of this confession, those of us who once were scattered, who once were alone, who once were not a people, who once were lost in darkness, we are called together 
into a body to experience and receive this life of Jesus. This eternal life together. So those who will follow Jesus, those who will count themselves dead to this world and will, de- and, and will deny themselves, will be brought together into a body, into a holy people of God. Or we can follow our own path and die alone, as everyone must die alone. So put your faith in the real Jesus. He is the one who defines who he is. Jesus is the Son of God. The one who existed before time, who came to earth to deliver us from our sins, who was chosen and anointed by God and proclaimed with power by the resurrection from the dead. Put your faith in the real Jesus. Let him define himself and how he should be followed. He died. He was raised. Take your cross. Count yourself dead and submit to Jesus' way. Let go of your life. Let go of dreams. Let go of hopes for success and hope instead for the fullness of life in Jesus. Press on and follow him and rejoice in the promise of his life. Tell good news, hope in the resurrection that as he was raised, so his followers will be raised. Put your hope in that. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And everyone found in him, whether awake or asleep, alive or dead, everyone found in him will be raised to eternity. Follow that Jesus. Join me in prayer. Worship team, come on up. Father, I pray that you would make clear your word. That you will reveal to us the the things that we cannot conclude from our own thoughts, from, from from the ways of flesh and blood. Lord, that you will make clear and you will reveal to each one here where it is that we are holding on to our own life. Where it is that we are failing to serve Jesus. Where it is that we are holding on to a false image of who he is and what he plans. And Lord, open our eyes to the fullness of the glory and the beauty and the power of your son and to the eternal life that he holds in store for his people. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to who you are and what you have in store. And grant us the strength and the perseverance to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.